Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, May 10th, 2021. On the show today, I ride Universal Orlando's new Velocicoaster over at Islands of Adventure, plus news and listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim continues the story of how characters from Disney's TV series have ended up in the parks, from Davy Crockett to The Mandalorian. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that bees like flowers. So if you give someone flowers and they like them, that person is really a bunch of bees in disguise. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I am doing well. You mentioned bees, and I, I wanted to share my little insect friend. So I, I sent you a, a photo this morning. Do you want to describe That's right. it? What, yeah, so Jim, uh, Jim texted me a few minutes before we went on the show a picture of the largest wasp I've ever seen around somebody I know eating a piece of fruit at Jim's desk. And my first question to him was, Jim, is there an elderly scientist experimenting with dinosaur DNA somewhere near where you live? Because this thing looks big enough to actually pick up that piece of fruit and fly away with it. It's a fairly sizable wasp, but this is the second year now that last year I began to have this wasp that would fly around my head every morning. And eventually I realized he would continue to annoy me until I fed him. So I would put down a fruit slice. <laughs> Who's trained whom in this scenario, well, no, Jim? That's it, exactly. That's it exactly. I think they were talking to the cats. It's like, look, he's stupid. He'll feed you. But what concerned me, that went on for months and then, you know, the wasp had a finite life. And so he disappeared. And then suddenly about a week ago, another wasp appeared and began flying around my head. And it's like... Did the other wasp leave behind tiny documentation? Yeah. <laughs> My one concern, though, Len, is I feel like at this point, I now need to start naming these things. And right. when it comes to wasps, the, the only appropriate name that comes to mind is, well, I mean, if you know who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, it's either George or Martha. <laughs> I'm not familiar enough with how to sex a wasp to go, all right, female, male, whatever. <laughs> It's good that you have pets, Jim. It, it keeps people young. There we go. And unless, of course, it, it bites me and I die from, you know, the, the, the beast. Anaphylactic shock. There we I go. Th my, my, my big concern here is if the wasps are getting bigger from year to year, at some point, you're going to lose the ability to negotiate with them. <laughs> <laughs> the fruit simply won't be enough. For now, we'll, we'll just keep an eye on them. So. All right. Good luck with that. Yep. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, TikTok Oz, Papa Jojo, Sean Crossman, and Dirk R. And longtime subscribers, E.T. McCall, DJ ER25, and TNC Alexander. Jim, while working at Disney's Animal Kingdom one summer, these kids used theater makeup every day to change every zebra's body coloring from white with black stripes to black with white stripes just to see the confused look on the Kilimanjaro Safari driver's faces on the savannah every morning. True story. Uh, <laughs> it's nice to see art majors get work. <laughs> You've got to hire the, the, the patrons of the art as well. There we go. All right, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, I'm sure you saw the news mm -hmm. earlier this week about Universal Orlando has opened up previews to annual pass holders for its Velocicoaster over its Islands of Adventure. This is the new Jurassic World-themed roller coaster mm -hmm. uh, over in the Jurassic Park area of Islands of Adventure. Um, what did you think of it? You know... 
you've been covering themed entertainment for too long. When you know, other people are being, oh my God, it's such a smooth coaster and it's wonderful show scenes. And you're the one going, wow, that locker setup is really smart. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it, right? So I got, um, I happened to, catch the email Mm -hmm. from Universal uh, that went out to annual pass holders, I think within 30 seconds of it being received, Mm -hmm. saying, you know, sign up for the uh, annual pass previews. And I got the first time slot on the first day it was open. So it was Sunday at 9 a.m. Okay. And you knew it was going to be popular, Mm -hmm. or I knew it was going to be popular when I went I mean, I, I live like 20 minutes from from Universal, right? Mm-hmm. Just down I-4. But sometimes I-4 is a hassle. And I haven't stayed at a Universal hotel in a couple months. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to book a room at Universal the night before mm-hmm. so I can just walk over, right? I don't have to get up like super early. I don't have to go park. Don't, all that stuff. And I went to look at Universal hotels for the night before the annual pass preview. Mm-hmm. And every single room on property was sold out. The only thing that was available was some like Rockstar suite mm-hmm. at Hard Rock mm-hmm. for twenty four hundred dollars a night. So I'm like, okay, I'll drive. <laughs> so I so I get there, you know, I, like leave the house at like seven thirty, and I'm there and like standing in front of the gate at eight, mm-hmm. and everything works flawlessly. Like mm-hmm. the walk in, the security screening, all of it, absolutely no problem. Get over to um, Jurassic World, and you know it's clearly marked where the preview is we have to show our annual pass and id and the barcode and the email that we got showing the date and all that Mm -hmm. stuff but all perfect Mm -hmm. and to universal's credit they had scheduled relatively few people per hour so i think the capacity of the ride like if it's fully functioning and everything's going exactly right is upwards of like 1900 people an hour and i got that from seth kuberski Mm -hmm. who covers the universal orlando resort for the unofficial guide so um but so but in practice like maybe 1700 an hour Mm -hmm. but i don't think universal scheduled 1700 annual pass holders for that first hour because i walked on and like you said the locker setup there is the next generation Mm -hmm. of improvements on the locker experience at theme park so I think we all know that, especially at Universal's more wild coasters, the ones that fling you upside down or that have loops and things like that, you're not allowed to bring anything large in your pockets on the ride because of the the physical forces that are on your body mm-hmm. will cause those things to come off and fly out. Mm-hmm. And I think, Jim, there, you, we talked about this once on the show, there, there, there was at least one incident where somebody got hit on a roller coaster with something that was flying out of somebody's pans or pockets. Or oh, whatever, yeah, right? yeah. And that's why they do it. It's a safety thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so for Universal, normally, you as you're going through the ride, as you're boarding the ride, you deposit your stuff in a locker, and the lockers use your annual pass barcode to open and close. So you go through this one area, you stuff all your stuff in the locker, you continue through the line. And then when you're done, you have to go find the locker and you know scan it, basically do the same process in reverse. Mm-hmm. Well, Universal's changed that a little bit for VelociCoaster because the front of the locker is as you walk through the queue and the back of the locker is where you walk off the ride. So you don't have to find like this space, the same space again, and go through the same waiting process. Mm-hmm. They've essentially made it a, a two-sided locker with doors on the front and back. And you stuff your stuff through the front door on your way on the ride, and you grab your stuff from the locker from the backside on the way out. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the ride, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But in terms of technical innovations in, in the lockers, and, and basically in, in like guest satisfaction oh, yeah. around that aspect of the ride, mm-hmm. it's 
a game changer. And I know it's, it's, it's relatively minor, but it's one of those things where you got to give credit to whoever went through the guest experience literally from start to finish and said, what could we improve here? Oh, you yeah. know? Yeah. And if you think about the locker space at Harry Potter and both the escape from Gringotts or. Yeah. Uh, I, and I actually went and did that right after that, just to compare the experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And just the notion that you have to return to the same space and you're competing against folks who are getting off the ride or get your right. about it's, to get it's on. a bottleneck and you have to wait in lines again. And it's it, like, why do you have to wait in the second line after you've already been on the ride? Right. It just, it holds you up. Yeah. No, no, just so very, that was fantastic. Very, very smart. And then design. the ride itself. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, a couple of interesting things about the ride. One is the seat system on the ride mm-hmm. does not contain lap bars or shoulder restraints. So like on Hulk, Mm-hmm. For example, are on you know, Harry Potter rides. There are you know things that come down over your shoulders mm-hmm. that hold you in place. Um, for this, it's actually a restraint system that fits around your hips. Mm-hmm. So imagine like uh, like cups, like a large set of cups that sit over your hips. Mm-hmm. And the uh, I, I I knew that that was what the restraint system was. What I didn't realize was once when I pulled down the restraint mm-hmm. on my hips. I thought it was fairly snug. Mm-hmm. And then a gentleman who I believe, I have to confirm this, mm-hmm. please nose tackle for the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, came and sat on the hip restraints mm-hmm. to the point where I both said, oh, and sir, I, I believe you owe me a drink. <laughs> like, where's my voucher? Right? Wow. But, but, okay. but at least <laughs> here's my number. Call me maybe. I don't okay. know. It was that snug, right? But but the point was, mm-hmm. I was not I was not leaving that restraint mm-hmm. until the car was back in the station. And the advantage of that mm-hmm. is that your hands are free to wave around or to flop around. Mm-hmm. In my case, mm-hmm. during the rides, G-force inducing little loops and stuff like that. So, a couple of things about the ride. It is the smoothest roller coaster. I've ever been on. It is like, I think, I think Hulk is a very good mm-hmm. roller coaster. My complaint with Hulk is that the physical forces on your body move your head around. Yes. And for yeah. me, mm-hmm. like it bangs my head on the head restraints. It, right? Same thing here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, I don't like it. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of rides around the world, roller coaster rides that I've been on. Mm-hmm. Cyclops mm-hmm. at uh, Thorpe mm-hmm. Park in, in Great Britain. Right? You're just spinning around so much and your head is bopping back and forth mm-hmm. that it actually hurts and it takes away from the experience. Oh, yeah. This is absolutely not the case. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to whoever designed this ride, understood the physics of how your head was going to react to all of these turns. And it's the most pleasant, fast and intense roller coaster I've ever been on. What? Like I was able to enjoy the entire experience. It wasn't terrifying. Like the first couple times I went on Hulk, mm-hmm. I kept my eyes closed. Like I was a 12 year old, mm-hmm. right? Cause it was just, it was that scary, mm-hmm. right? This is just as intense, but because the ride is physically more present, uh, uh, pleasant, mm-hmm. it's easier to enjoy it. Like I, the views on it are incredible. The, um, the other thing that I really liked about the ride is, you know, Universal's l- more limited for space, mm-hmm in its theme parks than Disney is, right? But Universal here has maximized the footprint, its use of uh, physical space for the ride in that most of the ride or much of the ride is over water, Hmm. right? So they didn't didn't just need to land to build the, the ride. So you go over water and that really makes the views and the experience much more interesting. 
because you know you can see yourself spiraling down towards the lake. You're like, oh, where's this going to end? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is they have a um, so there's this. Um, imagine a hill that you're cresting, and you sort of have a little flat section where you're on top. It's mm-hmm. called a, a, a high hat or a hat, mm-hmm. right on the uh, top hat in roller coaster jargon. And I was talking to Seth about this. I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure I could see my my house in celebration <laughs> from the top of this. And Seth was like, you saw your house? I saw God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Seth, you win that one. <laughs> okay, there we go. There we go. Kabrisky for the win. Okay, cool. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so you know, but you you hang up there for just enough, and then you go down. It's like it's like straight down, screaming, "Ah, mm. what's happening?" Mm. And it was. Um, and uh, the other interesting thing is, about halfway through the ride is mm. normally where things slow down, mm. and you get mechanically lifted up another ride hill mm-hmm. and it's it's time for you to like sort of like catch your breath mm-hmm. and reset for the next thing here where you would expect the pause to reset it accelerates into the second half of the ride completely unexpected but again so smooth and so controlled that you just take a deep breath and be like okay well i'm gonna start screaming again now you know it was amazing i loved it i thought I mean, it's, it's the best ride that, that Universal's done. I think it's the best roller coaster that I, and I haven't been on that many, like maybe, you know, 50 or so. Like mm-hmm. best roller coaster I've ever been on. I would totally have gone on it again if I was allowed. It's a winner. And wow. I think that the team, whoever worked on this, the team that worked on it mm-hmm. just did a great job again, not only from the ride experience, but from the operational aspects of it. So I got off the ride, found my locker, scanned my uh, annual pass, got my stuff. And I was done. Literally, I was there and back, door to door in my house mm-hmm. in under two hours. Jeez. Which when you think for a theme park experience, and by the way, that included uh, going over to the Harry Potter ride mm-hmm. to um, Wizarding World. And also I attempted to get on Hagrid's, but it was broken down literally for the third time that I've been there. I am now 0 for 3 in ride, trying to ride Hagrid's because the ride is completely down every time I've tried. Wow. So... Universal Media, if you're listening to this, you can either not invite me to things, all right, and keep keep things sort of going, or you know, if you want to set up something special where I just show up one night, uh, I'm good with that too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But a fantastic ride. If you guys, anybody's coming to Orlando, if you like roller coasters, mm-hmm. I would do a separate day at Universal and just catch Hagrid's Velocicoaster and the Harry Potter stuff, and that's worth the price of admission. It's that good. Very cool. Wow, wow, wow. That, that's high also. I, uh, I need to point this out that the existence of Veloci coaster implies the existence of both a speedy coaster and a timey coaster as well, <laughs> because of course velocity is you know, speed. <laughs> wow. Okay. <It's- laughs> For all you linguists out there, hey, we, we we keep the jokes coming. Okay. Cool. So uh, a couple of other things. So uh, Disney announced uh, recently, Jim, the uh, end of temperature checks for cast members and guests. Mm-hmm. As of May 16th, I think Universal is doing the same thing. The Universal temperature check may be gone as of today. Uh, today, the, yeah. It was fairly, May 6th, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The other news that was announced yesterday, and I think a lot of people were looking forward to, was the return of Halloween-themed events for the Magic Kingdom starting this summer. Now, it's not the Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween party, right? They're not using that name anymore. And they specifically call it a Disney After Hours event. And it's called the Disney After Hours Boo Bash, right? Right. So what is it? It's more a case of what it isn't. It's not a five-hour long event, for example. It's not the Mickey's Not So Scary where, you know, it's supposed to start at 7 and end at midnight. And 
guests who had tickets to this hard ticket event could get it in as early as four. It's a three-hour event, which is very much in line with what the other Disney After Hours events have been. Yep. It's also the language that's in there about Halloween-themed cavalcades. Yeah, so no parade. No parade. Likewise, they talk about, you know, how there will be character sightings throughout the park and special performances by the cadaver dance. Decor, lighting, music, treat stops with plenty of candy and so much more. So no character meet and greets. Yeah, and also we just got, prior to this event getting canceled in 2020, that, that in 2019 they introduced that the Disney Not-So-Scary Spectacular Fireworks. Mm -hmm. So that's not happening. Uh, likewise, there is no mention of the Hocus Pocus villain Spelltacular. And that that was that goes back a number of years, right? Uh, 2015, I, I want to say. It was when it was... Eons ago, Jim. Eons. Oh, there we go. Since so time right. immemorial, i.e. 2015. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the thing. Well, the I other thing, too, right, is the yeah. hours are different, right? After hours events are three hours long. So before... Mm -hmm. The not-so-scary yeah. Halloween party was 7 to midnight, mm -hmm. right? And you could get in, what, at 4? Yeah. There's actually a note in here to the effect of there's at least a couple of these that are being held in August and September. A, a couple, gonna, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're warning folks. It's like, this isn't going to start till 9.30. And run till 12.30 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Now, the company really, really, really wanted to bring back a Halloween event. They, it's an it's incredible revenue stream. And in fact, the range of dates that they mention, August 10th through October, October 31st. 30th, yeah. If you go back to the 2020 event that was planned and got canceled, that was supposed to run through August 13th through November 1st. So it's, yeah. it's actually pretty much lines up with that range of dates. Question now is, are they, they going to do the 36 dates? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't doubt it for a second the, um, okay. that they're going to do as, as many as humanly possible. And, and mm -hmm. let's put it this way. If they don't do 30, I'll be shocked. Mm -hmm. okay. um, the big question I have is, mm -hmm. without the parade, without yeah. the fireworks, without the mm -hmm. spectacular, with the cut down hours, how much are prices going to be reduced, if at all? And we don't know. We won't know that till next week. No, we won't. But the range of prices for the 2024 event, if you bought a ticket for August at the earliest possible time, yeah. $94, I want to say. Yeah, like 90, 90 bucks. Nah, it's cl it was closer to, no, it was more than that. It was like 95, 96 with change, right? With, uh, okay. with tax. And then if you wanted to actually be in the park the night of Halloween, yeah. October 31st, that was 160 ish. Yeah. 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 So it is going to be interesting with, with those things off the table to see what Disney Parks is looking for. My guess is the average prices could be somewhere in the middle of that. It's going to be in the $130 range. Okay. Okay. We'll see. So much of the language for this is vague at this point. You know, they talk about, for example, the guest experience is meant to offer low wait times at more than 20 attractions yeah. at the park. And you know, Len, that when the place is at full operation, 33 ride shows and attractions? Depends, in, depends on what you define. But yeah, I mean, it's anywhere from, you know, mid 30s to, to low 40s, depending on what, you know, what you consider an attraction. But yeah, more than 20 attractions is basically, that's what the park is running at right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. They've certainly left themselves enough wiggle room, but the notion of the mid-August start and the early November end, it's just, yep. it's one of these things where it's like, they're going for the exact same range of dates as, yep. as Mickey's Not So Scary. Oh yeah, and definitely. Just, the other thing that they said I thought that was interesting was that the same 
rules apply. Kids can wear costumes. Adults cannot wear masks, but um, facial coverings for COVID mm-hmm. are still required at this time. So, I mean, they're, they're, we're going in saying, okay, you know, everyone's wearing the surgical masks, or the, yep. uh, the COVID masks, and adults cannot wear costumes with masks. What's also in- intriguing about this is that when this was announced, you know, they, halfway they, to Halloween. Yeah. There we go. Those sorts of announcements started last week with the Disney Channel hyping its new animated series, The Ghost and Molly McGee, which won't debut till October, but a wonderful title scene. Definitely chase it down, folks. But the big news that broke today is in addition to the Boo Bash at Disney After Hours, uh, we just found out that we're getting a Muppet Halloween special. And, and it's called what, Jim? It's called the Muppets Haunted Mansion. Okay, so let me let me pause here and say, if they actually do a Muppets overlay of Haunted Mansion in the Magic Kingdom, I will take back every bad thing I've ever said about Disney management <laughs> in the history of ever. I will rend garments and gnash teeth in my repentance if I if we can get that. <laughs> a friend in entertainment who is explaining to me about. How you know, the Muppets present great moments in history had had moved from a, a daily thing to a a seasonal when it gets very very crowded type show. For the fiftieth anniversary, Disney had gotten past the point of show proposals to actual writing of two scripts for seasonal shows for the Muppets to present in the old Liberty Square setup. One version, which would be presented again in the Halloween August to November time frame, uh, they were supposed to do the, the, the legend of Ichabod Crane. Oh. All of them in the windows, all of them yeah. you know, doing the And then there would be a slight several-day pause as they changed out the new show. And then supposedly the next Muppet presentation was supposed to be Clement Seymour's A, a Visit from St. Nicholas. Oh. That, I mean, both yeah. of those you could, you could do as plays in that, in that space, yeah. Yeah, and that was the thinking. But like so many things that were posted as 50th, that's out now off the table as the parks concentrated, just getting back up to full capacity and, yeah. and staffing and that sort of thing. But those got far enough along that I guess they budgeted them. They talked about costumes and that sort of thing. So could happen in the future. I would imagine that there's more than one Disney Imagineer who in their mm-hmm. spare time has written those scripts and is just sitting around like this is what I do. This is my hobby now. Like I write, I write Muppet fanfic. <laughs> Brian Henson actually did uh, an interview with the TV Guide in 1991. I was going to say, as soon as you said TV Guide, I said, what what year of the 90s was it? <laughs> no, no. They, they, but he he was talking about you know we're we're definitely looking at bringing the classic Muppet characters back to television, and one of the things we're looking at is doing a Halloween special, and. That got tabled, but when Disney bought the Muppets in February of 2004, as early as 2009, word came out that they were circling back on this idea. They were looking at the Halloween special. In fact, it actually got talked about at the first D23 Expo uh, in September of 2009. Really? Yep. It got far enough along. They had concept art. They were they had sussed it out, but... Then corporate thinking changed, and the thinking was, why are we doing a TV special? We need to get a new feature going, and that's that's what we got, the Muppets movie that came out in November of 2011. So more than a decade later, here we are, back to talking about the Halloween special. But So what's the what's the gist of the Halloween special? Have they, have they, really, have they given us a plot? or a- Basically, Gonzo is challenged to spend a night 
in the Haunted Mansion. And for ease of production, this is going to be the California Haunted Mansion? Of course, the second most popular Haunted Mansion, because as we talked about in a previous show, Imagineers only understand Disneyland. Got it. There we go. There we go. I'm still trying to get confirmed if they're going to do Haunted Mansion Holiday this year. But all I've been hearing from the folks in Muppet Studios is they plan on shooting the on-location stuff in the park in August. This is on Disney+, Plus, although the plan is that it will eventually be repurposed for both Freeform and ABC. But yeah, drops in October of this year. I am super looking forward to this. uh, So am I. Also, Jim, uh, Disney announced the return of some more dining venues. Mm -hmm. So Cape May Cafe opens May 18th. Uh, No characters serving breakfast and dinner in its family style instead of a buffet. And I think that's interesting because... The, you know, the Yacht and Beach Club are not among the most popular deluxe resorts. So the idea that dining is coming back there, especially this dining mm-hmm. um, opportunity, shows that there's good enough demand for those resorts. That's good. Mm-hmm. The uh, other thing that's coming up in uh, May, May 16th, exact, uh, to be exact, mm-hmm. is the return of Chef Mickey's Dinner. So this this coming upcoming Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that's going to work with the... Renovations that are happening at the rest of uh, Disney. Yeah. Also, the the wave is also um, being shut down for some, I think, an extensive summer refurbishment. Mm-hmm. My sense is that'll also be sort of rethemed to the Incredibles as well. So the return of dinner at Chef Mickey's mm-hmm. um, makes sense. No, it does. It just I'm intrigued that given that Cape May, the characters were such a big part of that that they're at least starting off without characters. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. And then uh, I think my favorite of these announcements mm-hmm. is that dining is returning to Tusker House mm-hmm. in the Animal Kingdom later, later this summer. So summer begins June 21st, so sometime after that. Mm-hmm. It'll be family style instead of the walk-up buffet mm-hmm. with distanced characters, but at least Disney's bringing the characters back. And I think the characters were always somewhat distanced anyway at Tusker House. I mean, yeah, they walked around the individual rooms and you could get photos with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe yeah, maybe they maybe they weren't, they weren't distanced. Never mind what I was okay. saying. Okay. Yeah. Also, interestingly, Disney has put out, Jim, did you see this? Hiring announcements for cast member actors Mm -hmm. for the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. So actors and stunt people, did you see this? Yes, yes. For me, what's fascinating is the very, very specific roles and then the very, very vague roles. Right, right. So let's go through the the roles here real quick. And uh, thanks to our friends over at WDWMagic.com for posting this. The, uh, The job posting says, during the Star Wars experience, a variety of adventures befall the ship and onboard characters find themselves caught in the intrigue of a galactic conflict. This company of actors will portray characters from a vast and diverse galaxy and will actively engage with passengers as much as with other performers. Every character will be leveraged for improvisational, scripted, and interactive moments. And, and here are the roles that they're currently looking for right now. The first one is Ray, who is five foot six to five foot eight. And the, the description is a dynamic and athletic actor with an athletic slender build and strong improvisational abilities to portray Ray. Ray is a survivor, toughened by her life as a scavenger on the harsh desert planet of Jakku. Despite dismissing herself as a no one, she learns that her life is being shaped by the mysterious power of the Force. Actors with prior experience or knowledge in stage combat, mm-hmm. wushu, martial arts, or hand-to-hand are encouraged to attend. I would pay money to watch these editions right now, Jim. I'm just saying right now. 
uh, by the way, this is the first time we know that which characters, yes. specific characters, yep. are going to be on the Star Cruiser. So we had no idea, I think, before this, that there would be Ray, like an actual character we knew mm. from the the movies. Okay, so the next one is Kylo Ren, six foot to six foot two tall, a dynamic and athletic actor with improvisational abilities to portray Kylo Ren, a menacing force sensitive warrior. Kylo is driven by his connection to the dark side to achieve his ultimate goal of galactic domination. Actors with prior experience or, or knowledge in stage combat, wushu, martial arts, or hand-to-hand are encouraged to attend. And so there are a few other ones. There's, uh, there's a captain who is a mature commanding actor with strong improvisational abilities to portray the Halcyon's captain. She's a worldly Pantoran, 40s to 50s, with a rich, diverse history and dedication to her vocation. There's a cruise director. Before we slide on here, a Pantoran, by the way is a blue-skinned, near-human, native to the moon, Pantora. For those of you who, uh, you know, remember George... Wait, wait, blue and Pantora? I mean, (laughs) imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, Jim. (laughs) I want to stress here that anybody who remembers George Lucas's cameo in the prequels, this is the paint job we're, we're looking at. So, All right. you know, some poor actor every morning is, is you know, evidently the blue milk that's not unsold over in Batu. They, they're going to throw this guy into. How long until we call this person Captain Smurf? So <laughs> 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 uh, I'm never going to get a media invite, Jim. <laughs> All right. right the next one is a uh, cruise director mm-hmm. seeking an effervescent actor with strong improvisational abilities to portray the Halcyon's cruise director. She's a human in her 30s with the capacity to learn that life is about more than the fun of the moment and draws inspiration from the efforts she sees being made to bring harmony and justice to the galaxy. A born cruise director who loves travel and adventure, she's a cheerful and harmonious people person. Has anyone checked to see whether Lauren Taves is interested? <laughs> Hello, I'm Julie, your blue clues. <laughs> thank you, thank you. The next one is Ship Mechanic, a friendly and engaging actor with strong improvisational abilities to portray the mechanic, a youthful late teens or 20s human with big dreams. His enthusiasm sometimes outpaces his capabilities. And as a result, he tries to present a braggadocious front to mask the vulnerability of being far from home. I could be you or I could do that, Jim. Like, except for true. the late teens, twenties thing, right? Like we we don't know what we're doing, but we pretend, right? I don't know if you've <laughs> seen the piece of concept art where the, it's guests and this character, yeah. basically behind the scenes, sort of like grab a wrench, fix that pipe. Remember in the early Star Trek when they used to show Scotty sort of squeezed into events, you know, I give it her all, she got Captain, you know, yeah, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. Problem is, in much the same case as Jimmy Doing, who like me put on a few pounds as they get older, you can only make the vent so big. <laughs> Soon the vent is the size of a room, and, you, and now you've got whole, you've got stage stage prop problems at that point. There yeah. you go. So, all right, the next one is the Fixer, mm-hmm. a confident and engaging actor, again with strong improvisational abilities to portray the Fixer. Character portrayed is a well-traveled devil may care human in his forties, a convincing and handsome schemer. He uses his charm to his advantage as he seeks out associates to enlist in his criminal enterprise. His calculated and conniving approach is an intellectual dance, a passe doble that leaves passengers wondering, was he the bull or the matador? Actors with sleight of hand tricks a plus and are encouraged to prepare a demonstration of abilities. So as soon as I saw this, I wrote to our friend Chris Cox, the magician. Mm -hmm. In the UK, I'm like, Chris, 
you've got to make it over here somehow. Smuggle yourself in a box. Mm-hmm. You've got to try out for this particular role. And so I, I totally think Chris should do this. I don't know, total. And you know, the, the weird thing of it is if you think back over your Disney theme park history, the Golden Horseshoe for years was willing to pay Wally Bogue's salary because he was this yeah. masterful entertainer and so fit the role of, you know, the traveling salesman and, and all that. Yeah. And it just, yes, if you're going to do the Galactic Star Cruiser, you need a star. Oh, I think the fixer is going to be the star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I definitely think so. Yes. Again, Chris, big box air holes. Get here now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a couple of the other ones we'll just summarize. First order lieutenant. Mm-hmm who is an ambitious officer of the First Order, new to his position of power, and is working hard not to let us know that. He doesn't see a line between abusing and leveraging power. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Okay. All right. The next one is a saber trainer. who And so this is, Jim, where they're they're showing off the lightsaber. You saw that Mm -hmm. in the social media stuff, right? This is going to be, I think, a key role. Mm -hmm. Seeking warm and engaging athletic actors with improvisational abilities to serve as saber trainers. Character portrayed is in their 20s or 30s. Patient and well-composed instructors, saber trainers serve as expert wielders of the lightsaber, and he, she, they take cruisers through a physical demonstration. Prior sword or saber experience a plus, as the role requires the ability to confidently brandish a lightsaber. Only talent local to the Central Florida area will be considered. So... Super important there. Also, I don't know of a single person other than Daisy Ridley and maybe Ben Kenobi. Who was Ben Kenobi? Uh, Sir Alec Guinness, who's mm-hmm. dead, yep. right? Who actually has the ability to confidently brandish a lightsaber. Mm-hmm. Like the number of people on the planet Earth who can confidently brandish a lightsaber is two or three right now, right? There may be some training involved in that, that's what I'm saying. Cannot wait. Holy cow. And then uh, first-time cruisers. This is where they get in sort of like the comedic part of it. Mm-hmm. A youthful and friendly actor, guitarist, singer mm-hmm. with strong improvisational acting abilities to portray the first-time cruiser. Character portrayed is a Togruten? Yes. This is a sentient humanoid species characterized by their colorful skin tones, large montrails. Those are the dangling, almost snake-like pieces along with their... Their head tails and white facial pigment. So again, this is another one of these. You show up to work an hour and a half before your shift because you need to be made up. So this uh, character aspires to be more than, quote, the alien next door. Mm -hmm. This hopeless romantic is a friendly and earnest musician who happily serenades his fellow guests as he aspires to impress the galactic superstar. It's another character we'll talk about Mm -hmm. second. He's a strong rhythm guitarist and a happy-go-lucky easygoing musical style. Mm-hmm. A struggling singer-songwriter looking for his big break, vocal range low C to high A, low tenor, high baritone. I envision here, Jim, mm-hmm. the Star Wars equi- equivalent of Smelly Cat. <laughs> <laughs> like, if we could do that one day, okay. I would consider my $6,000 or whatever this thing costs mm-hmm. well spent. Okay. Smelly Tauntaun. Uh, Smelly Tauntaun. Uh, all right. <laughs> what are they feeding you? Anyway, the last one, mm-hmm. uh, Galactic Superstar, mm-hmm. seeking an actor vocalist with strong improvisational abilities to portray our Galactic Superstar. Mm-hmm. Character portrayed is a Twi'lek. Is that right, Jim? Yes. And again, a tall, near-human species whose most striking feature is a pair of long appendages protruding from the skull called Lecu. So we've actually seen this species a number of times in uh, Star Wars Rebels and, and the like. Was there one in The Mandalorian? 
I want to say yes. I thought so. Okay. Um, but I, I, okay. I, I want to say only featured in one or two episodes. So. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the Galactic Superstar commands respect mm-hmm. and flame roses at her feet, mm-hmm. operating in a legally dubious world of galactic intrigue while fighting for her race's integrity and freedom. Mm-hmm. She's also a phenomenally soulful singer who demands focus in every conversation and performance alike. Her vocal range is preferably that of a mezzo-soprano, and her musical style is a hybrid of neo-soul, jazzy, funk, colored by her extensive travel and experiences. Wow, that's gonna be. Yeah. I mean, I can I can picture this, and it sounds great, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the roles so far. Yeah, but the other piece of info that got dropped in addition to this audition information is Star Wars Intergalactic Cruiser not opening till 2022. So right. So I was gonna talk about that next. That's yeah. the but they're hiring now. Right. So you figure you know give it the month of May mm-hmm. for people to sign up. Mm-hmm. That means that they're gonna take seven months or more to train these people for yes. these roles, which tells you mm-hmm. how in-depth and complicated this whole thing is going to be, right? Because mm-hmm. again, it's two days of live action role-playing mm-hmm. for many hours, mm-hmm. for many guests, constantly. If you think about the fixer, he is going to be the one introducing a lot of the story elements that guests then would board the shuttle off of the Halcyon head down to the surface of Batu and begin their adventure. You know, it's like, I got this thing for you to do. If you can meet a friend of mine. And it's not just the stuff that needs to be done on the ship and training people to do that. It's then in turn incorporating this material into the existing Galaxy's Edge in such a way that the guests... Right, the narrative, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, remember, it's got to be done in such a way that the day guests don't feel right. like they're being shorted. Like, how come you get to talk to the cool guy? And I don't. Right. Well, so the other interesting thing is this. Remember a couple years ago, mm-hmm. um, Disney Research, the academic arm, if you will, mm-hmm. of uh, Disney Corporation, put out a paper mm-hmm. where they described the algorithm that they had created to solve the problem of scheduling hundreds of people doing live action role-playing adventures in a single space, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, you've got uh, in, in the Galactic Star Cruiser, you're going to have like, let's say a dozen or two dozen interesting rooms with props and things set up, right? Mm-hmm. But you've got potentially hundreds of people who need access to those rooms. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a scheduling problem mm-hmm. of figuring out where in the story everyone is. And because of that, what rooms they need access to. And I think as we said at the time, to preserve the integrity of the experience, mm-hmm. What you don't want is to have 15 people all lined up to fight Darth Vader next, right? Because you you don't, that's the thing, it's exactly the thing you don't want, takes Mm -hmm. you out of the experience. So one of the things that they mentioned in this research paper Mm -hmm. was that you would need the ability to send people on side quests Mm -hmm. related, but not integral Mm -hmm. to their experience as a way of managing the time at which they arrived at those limited number of rooms to do the key component activity mm-hmm. of their event, right? So if you have to vi- uh, battle Kylo Ren in some sort of ultimate lightsaber duel, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to do that at four o'clock, but you don't have anything to do from 3.30 to four. The fixer is going to be the guy who says, hey, you know what? We can make some galactic credits if you just go to this bar and find the guy who knows this particular piece of information, Right. And that, that will take the half an hour. Yeah. Just the variables. Think about it. This is Florida. Oh, we're I know. Talking about. 
Well, that's why I thought Chris would be great because, I mean, the, you got to think on your feet. Oh, absolutely. But at the same time, Florida, you know, the notion of you step off the shuttle and, and the three o'clock monsoon is started. Why is it raining in the Galactic Star Cruiser? This yeah, is very strange. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah but I thought, I thought that like, like of all of the characters that are here, I mean, obviously, you know, Kylo Ren and, and mm -hmm. Ray are going to be the stars and the Galactic Superstar are going to be important. Mm -hmm. But the fixer yeah. is going to be integral to everybody's experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be the key role there. Yeah. Because uh, so. everyone's going to interact with interact with the fixer multiple times. And again, his name is Chris Cox. Yeah. All right, Jim, we got time for uh, for a couple of listener questions. Mm -hmm. uh, a quick one, a follow up on an email from last week from Erin. Remember, she had asked about whether anyone else was getting my Disney Experience PhotoPass photos of other families and other people mm -hmm. in their MD account. And so we asked people to write in with that, and dozens of you wrote in. Mm -hmm. To say, yeah, I didn't know I had this extended family. It's a some version of you know Disney meets Maury Povich. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you what? are not the person who's paying for this vacation. <laughs> exactly. And and funnily enough, it happened to me. I was testing touring plans mm -hmm. in the Magic Kingdom on Saturday, mm -hmm. and when I got the notification in MDE that I had a new photo on PhotoPass, I opened up the app mm -hmm. and realized that I had become an older African American gentleman. <sighs> I was like, "Wow! They they really they really see inside you. Like they know my soul. Wow! That's that's, that's what those photos do. Yeah, that's anyway. a unique skill, then. So. <laughs> it really happens. Mm -hmm. So, uh, all right. And then uh, one new listener question this week. It's from Emily in Iowa mm -hmm. who says, uh, we're heading to Walt Disney World in a few months. And I've been trying like crazy to get a Chef Mickey's reservation to celebrate my son's fifth birthday. No luck so far. And since COVID began, I've noticed the join the walk-up list option on the My Disney Experience app. What are the nuances of using this feature? Is it available to off-property guests? Any thoughts on how likely it is that we would get a table? In addition to my five-year-old, we'll be bringing dad, his three brothers, and grandma, and want to make sure that if we venture out before our Epcot day, there's actually a chance we get to eat there. So a couple of things. Number one, keep trying to get a reservation because that's going to be your, your best, uh, best bet. The other thing I would say is if you're going to Epcot and you want to try getting into the Chef Mickey's early, I would show up 15 minutes before the restaurant actually opens mm -hmm. if you can't get a reservation. And the, there are going to be two tricks there, two things you've got to sort of like get past. Mm -hmm. One is... You have to get past the security guard without a reservation. So that's going to be tricky in and of itself. Mm. But let's say, Emily, we can tell from your writing that you are a smooth talker mm. and you can get your way in. So then what I would say is 15 minutes or so before Chef Mickey opens up, mm. um, I would walk up and ask if you could fit in. Mm. The difficulty there, besides the fact that they're probably already booked, is that there are seven of you. Mm. And that's a relatively large number for them to fit in at once. But if it's going to work without an advanced reservation – that's how it's going to work. Can I also suggest getting some glycerin to place in the eyes of the five-year-old? Exactly. <laughs> Tears. Have I pointed to the weeping child? Oh, mother, my life is ruined. The other thing is that if you can't do morning, mm -hmm. and I'm assuming here that Epcot is going to open early and you can get done, you could try the dinner thing that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, that's a secondary option. There you go. Emily's second question is this. The same trip actually involves a group of 19 12 adults and seven kids. Apparently, Emily is applying for sainthood mm. on this trip. Yes. I've been planning and studying, but any extra thoughts on how to navigate this large of a group through the parks together would be helpful. So I've done large groups like this a couple of times. Mm. My advice is don't try and move everybody into lockstep mm. from ride to ride, day to day. Mm -hmm. What I would say is you know, pick out a few things that you think everybody should do. Mm -hmm. 
um, together, right? So like maybe everybody wants to ride. It's a small world together or everybody wants to eat lunch together. Or everybody wants to take a break together, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't plan or what I expect mm-hmm. that large of a group to stay entirely together at the same time. You, you would either, you would either move, you'd either spend most of your time deliberating what to do next or just simply moving from ride to ride, mm-hmm. you know, with three different bathroom breaks in between, right? It's just, it's very difficult to do. Yeah. So don't, I wouldn't stress out about that. I would say, you know, agree in advance on what what the key things are that you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you all want to get to the park at the same time. Maybe you don't. But, you know, agree on like, you know, let's eat lunch together. Let's, and then after lunch, let's go on Buzz Lightyear to get together mm-hmm. to see who has the, the highest score. I would do stuff like that. I would not stress about everyone trying to be together and be happy all the time. No, no. Pick three and four tent poles per day, yeah. you know, big things. And I, I get the togetherness thing. I especially post COVID, but you know, yeah. also it's Florida, it's 1200 degrees, you know, a million yeah. percent humidity. You're going to get annoyed with each other five minutes after you get into the park. Yeah. I mean, at some point, at some point, somebody's going to be the first person to say, I'd rather go back to the house mm-hmm. and, take a dip in the pool. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. you should be able to let them do that. Mm-hmm. You got enough adults and enough kids where you can make that happen. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you mentioned that it's, you know, it, it, how hard it is. It was 95 on Saturday. When I was at the Magic oh Kingdom. my God. Well, it was like summer's here. It's mm-hmm. been here for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the interesting thing is like earlier this month or, mm-hmm. you know, late April, the humidity hadn't quite arrived yet, mm-hmm. but you could feel it every day getting a little bit more intense. And now the humidity is here too. Yeah. Speaking of which, did you see the, the piece that Carly Wiesel did for the uh, the New York Times about what she packs for the parks? No, I didn't see it. Oh, that's good. I like Carly. It's this amazing article where she talks about her little backpack that she has her, her aluminum bottle that keeps water cold because her feet get wet. She has little booties she can put on on top of her shoes. You know, she has a poncho in there. But it's the whole notion of how one packs for a theme park where it will be 95 and yeah. humid at 10 o'clock in the morning and then it will be 40 degrees after 6 o'clock at night and what you need to you know, to, to be able to wear to, to stay for a full day in the park. No, definitely a piece worth chasing down. You know, she's a real pro. Yeah, she, she's fantastic. I love, I love Carly. So generally, like when I talk to people about mm-hmm. that kind of approach where it's going to be like you know 95 during the day mm-hmm. and, and humid and then cooler at night, People generally have one of two philosophies, mm-hmm. either industrial strength deodorant to the point where like <laughs> you simply open the cap and everyone's nose within a five foot radius goes numb or, or no deodorant at all saying, you know, why bother? What did Carly go with on that? Carly, when she started off, stressed the importance of phone batteries. You know, the whole notion, in fact, to circle right. back to this giant group that steps away you know, oh, in yeah. theory and does that, you need a, a way to be able to communicate with these folks who go yeah. off for three or four hours at a time and then regroup just in case plans change or there's a weather-related thing or the ride you want to get on suddenly shuts yeah. down. And she was talking about, this is the cord I use because I can, you know, I, I can usually find something that fits this and the, right. these are the sets of batteries. I mean, it just, you do have to pack and thoughtfully before heading out to a park. That's a good point. So on the, you know, with 19 people, you know, 12 adults and seven kids, mm-hmm. I would say that there should be at least 12, mm-hmm. if not more, fairly substantial cell phone charger batteries. And go. given the variety of people you've got there, mm-hmm. I would include pretty much every sort of cable mm-hmm. that you could have. Like literally, if you needed to connect, you know, a Betamax VCR <laughs> to like your, uh, like a toilet uh, Y water pipe. 
Like you should, you should find one of those and just, you know, put it in your bag just in case you never know. Ironically, I was just at the hardware store looking for the exact same connection. And it just, <laughs> I've got so, so much stuff on beta. I don't want to talk about it. Exactly. Finally, uh, Emily says, uh, here's the last comment. A couple weeks ago, there was a listener question about how people were using the FastPass lane at rides. I listened carefully and don't think I heard you mention rider switch. This made me nervous for the aforementioned group of 19 since it's a key part of our plan. And I checked and rider switch is still happening. And I really appreciate that touring plans. The app takes into account the creation of a custom plan. I thought other listeners might want to know. So thank you. Very much, Emily. That was correct. I think we missed that in the uh, in the original note. But yeah, definitely, you can still do a rider switch, and it works the same way as before. So, thank you for that uh, that letter. That was awesome. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the story of how characters from Disney's TV series have ended up in the parks, from Zorro to the Mandalorian. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Jim, we left off last episode sometime on the American frontier. I believe we were talking about Davy, Davy Crockett? We were. We were. Okay. We left off exactly. It was 1957. Fess Parker is walking away for Walt Disney Productions. He had a seven-year contract that he had with the company. And meanwhile, ABC is leaning heavily on Walt, insisting that he come up with another sort of Davy Crockett-sized hit which could then air in the weekly Disney TV series. And Walt had gone back to them and said, right, you can't top pigs with pigs. No, you can't. You can't. But at the same time, it was concerning to ABC to be watching Gay Fest Parker go out the door. And he still thought when he's leaving Disney that Walt Disney was a genius. But Walt didn't have all that much experience when it came to stars that weren't animated. Fest Parker was the very first adult actor that Walt Disney ever placed on a contract. Prior to that, the only two actors he placed on a contract were Bobby Driscoll and Luann Patton, who had been the st- child stars of Song of the South back in 46. And I'm not saying that Fess Parker was under contract to Walt Disney Productions. He was under contract to Walt Disney himself. And that's where the trouble starts, because there's language in Fess's personal employment contract that then allows him to accept outside employment, as in other acting gigs from studios other than Disney, who, you know, are offering roles. But only if Walt is okay with these outside roles that Fess is being offered. And the problem is Walt has kind of a narrow view of, of what sort of roles Fess should be playing. So this is the fall of 55. And Disney and Fess Parker are down in Georgia getting ready to shoot the great locomotive chase. And Walt shows up at the hotel to collect Fess. 
and his co-star, Jeffrey Hunter, and he's going to drive them over to the set. So Walt's driving the car, and these two actors are getting to know each other before they're going to work together. And Jeffrey starts talking about the movie he just finished working on, which was John Ford's The Searchers. The Searchers was my dad's favorite film. Was it really? Honest to God. Okay. I know people, like, in my life Mm -hmm. who that film has had such a powerful impact on Mm -hmm. that they named their firstborn son Ethan. Oh, really? Holy cow. Okay, well, just the car with Fess and Walt. And the topic of the searchers comes up and Hunter says to, you know, talk about what it was like to work with John Wayne and Natalie Wood. And and it's Disney's driving. He turns to Fess and goes, oh, uh, by the way, you were up for that part. Fess is like, what part? (laughs) And Walt, Walt, as he's driving, goes, well, you know, explains that John Ford had reached out to him and uh, that Ford had wanted Fess to play. Jeffrey Jeffrey Hunter was the, he was the young kid on this, right? He was the sidekick to Martin Pauly, the, the, the adopted nephew. Now, mind you, the movie hasn't come out yet. This is still 55. But Fess is hearing this for the first time in the car with Jeffrey to the effect of, yeah, that came through and I read the script. And I didn't think it was right for you. And this isn't the only time this happens in 55. That very In that very same window of time, 20th Century Fox acquires the rights to William Inge's bus stop. And they are prepping it at that studio as a vehicle for Marilyn Monroe. So Walt says, oh, by the way, you were up for the part in The Searchers, right? Uh, Martin Pauly, right? Yeah, Martin Pauly. Out of way, Martin. There we no, go. No, you don't, Ethan. No, you don't. <laughs> right? That, 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 that clip from the great movie ride, right? Yeah, yeah. Just, okay. uh, but it turns out he's also up for Beauregard Decker in Bus Stop. And, and this is the role that ultimately goes to John Murray. And it's just and to test his way of thinking. The fact that he lost out on Bus Stop and he lost out on Searchers because this is how Walt, you know, it's like, look, you're a Disney leading man. In Bus Stop, you're going to be hanging out with that blonde bombshell Marilyn Monroe. And I don't yeah, know that. It, would, how- it wouldn't be family appropriate. Right? Nobody's going to come see you in a uh, in a Disney family film after that, right? Man. And you zeroed the scene that evidently Walt really made him think twice about the searches. The notion of here is Martin Pauly protecting Natalie Wood from a John Wayne who's at that moment, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. So, so the, in, in this particular thing, like John Wayne is xenophobic, right? Because yeah. mm-hmm. Natalie, Natalie Wood gets kidnapped mm-hmm. by Native Americans mm-hmm. and, but then b- becomes one of them, right? Because yeah, lives with them. Yeah. And so, and so Ethan thinks that, that mm-hmm. that's an abomination, mm-hmm. right? And is, is getting ready to shoot her. Mm-hmm. And Martin comes to her defense. Yeah. Right? yeah you know, so, yeah. Just, I mean, so I, I think, I think it's a great film, but that, that particular moment is John Wayne's character is problematic. No, no, no. And, and, and again, in, again in right ways. to the very end of that film. In fact, you know, the, yeah. the end shot of the movie. That- the end shot of that film is just. <sighs> Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Okay. Another issue, they had a handshake deal in regard to the merchandising money for Davy Crockett. And basically it was anything that had Fess's likeness on, he would get 10% of, you know, whatever the toy sale was. And so Disney wasn't necessarily ready for what happened with the Davy Crockett phenomenon, coupled with the fact that they found out after the fact that because Davy Crockett was a public figure from American history, it was kind of hard to copyright him. And it was only very late in the game that Disney realized, now, wait a minute, 
if we copyright this stuff as Walt Disney's Davy Crockett, now we can put that on sales and now we can, you know, uh, toys and now we can put- So really, you can do that. You can say Walt Disney's Davy Crockett. And that suddenly becomes a very specific thing. So I could say Len Testa's Walt Disney. Yes, but on the other hand, <laughs> you then get in that situation where which set of attorneys has deeper pockets and how long can you bleed the other side? Yeah, so my, my sense is that this is not argued from some sort of legal process. Precedent, but, but who's got the most money to argue? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> the estate of Davy Crockett was probably not going to uh, to fight this too too much, right? A hundred years later, there right. you go. All right, so by the time they get this sorted out and they get the official Walt Disney Davy Crockett merch out there, the, the fan honor is pretty much passed, and so Fetz never gets the large check that he was expected. Now, mind you, he's being paid five hundred dollars a week at this point by you know come by Walt Disney himself, and that's that's a lot of money for a working actor in in the fifties. But at the same time, yeah. he's looking at you know the Disney company making millions, and I'm getting my five hundred. So Walt sees that Fetz is unhappy. But they have a seven-year contract, but Walt just like, look, I don't want you unhappy. You don't want to be here. Let's just part ways. So he lets him out of his seven-year contract, and Fess gets picked up by Paramount and goes over there and works for a number of years. Fess is still grateful to Walt. I mean, he got to see the world. At the height of the Davy Crockett, he and Buddy Epson get on a plane and go to 42 cities around the world, 13 different countries, meet thousands of people, and it's a life-changing experience. Let me, let me just say that if Adventures by Disney offered a adventure with Buddy Epson to 40 different, <laughs> different cities and 13, I would, I would be the, literally be the first thing, first ever Disney Adventures by Disney I, I signed up for. I would take Betty White as well, by the way, if Buddy Epson's Ooh, not available. Even better, even better. Okay, ABC still wants some sort of a Fess Parkery show. In fact, okay. when Fess is away from Disney, they actually go to him and they get a TV show set up. 1962 television series, and they actually do an update of Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the Jimmy uh, Stewart movie. Doesn't quite work out. It, it turns out America really doesn't care for Fess Parker in modern day suits. They like the Bucks. Oh, he's typecast. All yeah. Right. And so the show gets canceled after one season. And Fess <sighs> is kind of at sixes and sevens at this point. Paramount has let him go. ABC has let him go. And so yeah. while he's trying to figure out what to do next with his career, he accepts a role in a touring company of Rodgers and Hammerstein's cowboy musical, Oklahoma. So Fest is doing what he's been taught, you know, to the effect of, okay, the show's over. You go out and stand in the alley. You sign autographs. and It's a tradition, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a theater tradition. Yeah. Okay. okay. So it's 1963. And every night after the show, there, there's dozens upon dozens of people behind the show. And they have their, their Davy Crockett stuff and he signs his stuff. But one one week he comes out and instead of dozens, there are hundreds. And then it's like, Ooh. what's going on? Oh, because they remember him from the, uh, from the TV series. Better yet, at this point, Walt has moved his weekly television series over from ABC to NBC. The, the Wonderful World of Color debuted on NBC in 61. And in 1963, for the first time ever, they reran the Davy Crockett television episode. Ah, reruns. Reruns. <laughs> so, so television existed commercially for, for how many years before reruns were invented? 
Less than, less than 10? Yeah. All right. And suddenly, you know, hundreds of people. And then the week after that, when the next episode is there, there's hundreds more. Oh, not only that, because if they watched it as kids in 57, yeah. they're older now, yeah. right? Yeah. They're, they're young adults. And they're like, oh, I can, I can go up by myself and mm. I can see this guy. Remember that Disney wasn't ready with the first time around. But this time they knew we've scheduled the, the Davy Crockett episodes to air on NBC on these weeks. Yeah. And so months ahead of time, they prepped the merch again, that Walt Disney's Davy Crockett merch and it it hit the exact same time and it wasn't the huge phenomenon that it was back in 54 55 but it was it yeah. was sizable and fest was very pleased one day to see a check show up in the mail and and this time around they were ready and he got his 10 percent of the oh that's great yeah uh, well that, that was the thing walt was an honorable guy now walt re-enters the picture at this point because nbc is looking at the ratings that the davy crockett episodes got and so they go to Walt and go, look, I just want to float an idea here. You know, the, the, <laughs> have you thought about the further adventures of Davy Crockett? We could, we could do this in color. You know, we've talked with Fez. He's kind of likes the idea. And Walt, yeah. at this point, because the wonderful world of, of Disney is the top-rated series on NBC at that point, Walt's able to go, well, you know, my company owns five episodes of Davy Crockett, which we right. know from just the recent merchandise sales, are very popular. And my concern is, Fest just did a television show, just did that, that Mr. Smith thing that got canceled yeah. after a season. And if we do a, a season of Davy Crockett, you know, and it doesn't work, you're right. actually damaging what I own. So I, I'm going to respect fully You could burn out. This is what they did with uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, right? Yeah. I mean, they just, yeah. they yeah. ran it to death. Mm -hmm. And they killed the golden goose. But on the other hand, NBTC takes a step back and they, we still want to do this thing with Fess. But Walt said no. And it's like, but you know, there were other American heroes that, that wore buckskin and coonskin caps. Which brings us to Daniel Boone. In the very last season of Walt Disney Presents over on ABC, the, the episode, the season that ran from 1960 to 1961, Disney actually did four episodes of a Daniel Boone series. Really? Yep. The actor who played Daniel on the Disney show, Dewey Martin, was a good, close, personal friend of Fess Parker's. They did four episodes that didn't entirely work, but they then go to Walt and said, well, look, we're out of respect for you because you've set this term. We won't do David Crockett, but would you be okay with Daniel Boone? And Walt was, you know, just, it's like, I still like Fess and I still want to work with the guys at NBC. So sure, do your Daniel Boone show. <laughs> How about Sam Houston? Is Sam Houston close enough? <laughs> but at this point, NBC and Fest actually go to Disney and go, well, do you want in? You know, and do you want to be yeah. part of the show? And it's like, well, Walt's looking at, you've you got to think, this is, they're prepping this to launch in the 64, 65 television season. Yeah, I was going to say, you're getting, you're getting kind of close to, I mean, the Disneyland's already ramped up. Oh, but yeah. you're getting close to the World's Fair. Uh, uh, World's Fair, you're in the middle of yeah. the land search for Walt Disney World. August of that year, you have the debut of Mary Poppins. I mean, oh, right, yeah. this yeah. is a Walt I mean, Disney company that just doesn't have the bandwidth. And it's just sort of right, like, no, right. no, no, you guys go do that. And who do they turn to? 20th Century Fox Television. All right. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right. So this it, is called foreshadowing. Yes. I mean, if it, you know, <laughs> with the $71.3 billion acquisition of all those Fox television assets, Disney, in theory, does now own Daniel Boone. And there are six years of episodes, 162 color episodes of Daniel Boone. 
Are there really? 162 episodes? 162 episodes. It was a hit right out of the box. Though I have to tell you the story of the affiliate party. It's it's like the series launches in September. So it's late August, early September. And they float okay. all the affiliates out. NBC's, you know, got everybody at a party. And this is where you meet the stars. You meet the producers. You, you eat a steak. You knock back a beverage. And Fess is there glad handing the affiliates. And he feels, you know, somebody tap on the shoulder. And it turns around and it's Walt. Oh. And Walt right, literally sticks out his hands and says, hey, Fess, I just want to wish you, you know, the best of luck on your new series. And it's just one of these things where he said, he teared up because in a weird sort of way, this is the guy who gave me my career and I sort of think of him as a father figure. And right. he's gone out of his way to be decent about this and to allow this to happen. And so he's, well, thank you, you know, Walt. And is Lillian here? So, oh, she's right over here. And they go, you know, you go over and says hello to Mrs. Disney and that sort of thing. But, and again, it's a hit out of the box. But because, again, he had been paying attention. This time around, Fess has made sure that, all right, so all of that Daniel Boone, 20th Century Fox merch, you know, it's at the labels on the thing. More to the point, he owned 33% of the show. Really? He owned a third of the show? So he owned a third of the show, and he made Ooh. millions from the very first day. His, his great-grandkids are probably living off that. How many of us get a second chance? He had his Navy yeah. Crockett thing happen, and then had a couple of fallow years, and here was Danny Boone who's going to take advantage of every opportunity that's sent to him. And so he's looking at not just the Walt Disney, the brilliance of the merchandising, but he's also looking at, like, there's the, the Davy Crockett war canoes at those theme parks and, you know, theme right. parks. That's that's something I should consider doing. So in the mid-1960s, he reaches out to your personal favorite, Len, Buzz Price. And he's like, okay, if I were to do an American history-themed theme park, where should I build it? What should I do? And so he had, he had from his one-third cut of the show, mm -hmm. he had enough money to consider building his own theme park. Oh, not not just considering building. He spent the money, Len. In March of 1968, he has spent $18 million on a 32-acre site in Boone County, Kentucky. Hold on. I've, I've been to Boone County, Kentucky. Have you really? And I've been there. I've been there in the 21st century. Okay. And I don't think... I think you could buy all of Boone County for $18 million, Jim. What's, what? Uh, it's at the junction of Interstate Highway 71 and 75. It's 20 miles south of Cincinnati. He put down 18 acres on a 13-acre parcel, also picked up options on 1,500 adjoining acres. That's where the hotels and the restaurants and that sort of thing would be. And Buzz wanted specific. So they had planned an entire theme park called Frontier Worlds. This is how you edit the theme park. You park your car, you walk up to the entrance, and what's in front of you? It's a dock, and there sitting at the dock is a full-sized Mayflower. Oh, the ship. Yep. All right. All right. It's, okay. it's supposed to be 1620. You climb inside the Mayflower after you bought your admission ticket. You have a quick simulated trip across the North Atlantic where the ship rocks back and forth during a storm. And when you step out of the other side of the Mayflower, it is the forest primeval in the New World surrounded by giant trees and thick forests and but as you yeah i mean you could you could see it i mean the uh the transition the entrance experience sort of writes itself okay All okay right. but the main street of the park was going to be a recreation of the pilgrims plymouth colony and then from there it would split off into uh, you know various areas of american history now mind you some of this is is kind of wacky like you know there was going to be a a salem witch trials land <laughs> where <laughs> 
I, I, I swear to God, there was an attraction going to be called the the Witch Trial Whirl Through. I, I don't know what that entailed, but so you know, we talked earlier about the character descriptions for the additions for the Galactic Star Cruiser. Mm-hmm. Imagine one of those roles being strong actor, good with spells, gets burned at the stake every day at three o'clock. Like, like, what is the what is the description of that job? I don't know. <laughs> Must own asbestos. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. But there, there was also going to be a Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Finn okay. Land. The beauty of this is it's it's most of its most of the intellectual properties in the public domain at this point. That's it exactly. But you're, you're not even squinting. So the Rocky Mountain Pike Speak right? That's the Matterhorn. Okay. Right. Or if you you look at the Huck Finn area, it's like showboat. Yeah, that's the Rivers of America. But he put down his his $18 million. He was ready to go. But ultimately what happened is that in the same window of time is when King's Island is being proposed. And it it literally became dueling projects. And in the end, the belief was that King's Island is probably the smarter way to go. And, you know, that opens in 72. But Fess doesn't give up on the idea. He turns to Buzz and says, okay, this didn't work here, but we have this great idea for a park. Where else could we build this? And Buzz says, well, like California is prime theme park territory. Let me go look. And he comes back to Fess and says, I found an amazing chunk of land in Santa Clara, California. Okay. All right. And so 72... King's Island opens up, and so they they switch the other side of the company, uh, country. Uh, Fess hires an architect to sort of retool the park at Frontiers World so it would play better to theme park fans in California. This catches the attention of Ray Kroc, the owner of McDonald's. And for one crazy six-month-long period, Ray Kroc is not just in, he's fully in. He's like, I will pay for this damn thing. And so, you know, suddenly they have 425 acres in Santa Clara, California. They've got Ray Kroc's money. The world kind of loses its mind. And then as happened with Ray, his enthusiasm faded. There was another bright, shiny object that, that caught his attention. But... Parker was a, a smart enough guy, as was Buzz Price, to know that the Marriott Corporation was eyeballing getting into theme parks at this point. So it's just sort of they just sort of pivoted away from Ray Kroc and waved Marriott in. And Marriott was on board from that point forward. But Marriott was hesitant about the American history theme. They were worried that it, it sounded a little too educational. It sounded... Uh, Brandy, and face it, you know, family entertainment thing. More cupcakes and cookies. We don't need brand. You know, education. Right. You know, education is something kids do during the week. You know, we want them to come here on the weekends. So, uh, in the end, they begin sort of sniping at the theming, at the stories, at the themes, yeah. and which is how Frontier Worlds even loses its original name and becomes Marriott's Great America. But at this point, this is the second time he's tried to get this park going. And here's Marriott just hitting him with more and more demands and more and more changes. Yeah. And I, mean, fact- no, no, I mean, he's also, what, 15, 16 years older, yeah, right? He's yeah. like, I got the money. What, do I, what am I doing this for? That's it, exactly. So he, he literally turns to, in June of 73, he turns to Marriott and says, look, this is not the park that I set out to build. So tell you what. I will sell you the land. I'll sell you my interest in the property. Merritt goes, absolutely. Here's a giant chunk of money. He walks away, and this is where he decides, you know, I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction. This is where he, he you know, you've heard of, no doubt about the Crockett Vineyards and, you know, that sort of stuff that he did later in life. 
Yeah. Uh, this is the money that made that possible. And on the other hand, the Marriott Great America uh, that opens in May of 76. Meanwhile, another theme park in California, a certain place called Disneyland, begins to sort of look at history and lean into it a little bit, which will finally, on the next show, get back to the Zorro part of the story. And Rancho del Zocalo too, right? And there we go. Every, every we time go. we talk about it, I think I need burritos from Disneyland. Greg, I definitely need burritos. And, and frankly, this wasp here is, is looks tired of the applesauce. <laughs> so you've got something else. Got there something we else. go. Right? A little guacamole. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including our complete 15, 16, 17 part series uh, from Joseph Mankiewicz on ideas Disney had for Epcot way back in the 1970s. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. And next week's show, Zorro in the Parks. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be recounting the story of how Warren Freckles Brown became the first rodeo rider to last eight seconds on the legendary bull tornado at the Chicagoland Barbecue Boots and Bourbon Fest on Saturday, June 5th at the Afterlife Music Hall in beautiful downtown Lombard, Illinois. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. <laughs>